Did you know that in America, the self-help industry is an $11 billion industry? I hope you heard me correctly. $11 billion spent by Americans every year looking for self-help. And in that self-help, I did a quick view of just going to Amazon.com, self-help, and all these categories came up. Fitness, peace, inner healing, emotional pain, relationships, happiness, self-esteem, self-awareness, anxieties and phobias, communication and social skills, death and grief, motivational, and then the list of management, stress management, anger management, time management, money management, weight management, and so on and on. All of the self-help products are out there. So my question is, obviously, there's a market. People are looking for self-help. So then my question is this morning, what happens if you figure out how to maybe fix or improve in some of these areas. I mean, what if you were able to better handle stress, or maybe enjoy some rest, or overcome certain fears? Maybe build better relationships? How about manage your money better? What happens if you had some success at that? What happens when you die? What happens? Jesus put it this way. He said, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what can a man, Jesus said, give in return for his soul? So while it's definitely important to know all about life now, it's critically important to know about the life that is to come. What about life after death? You know, that market isn't that big. Except for the Christian. This book is still a number one bestseller. This one will remain on the charts. This one is the one that holds the truth. Not all of these other worldly philosophies of man, of try this and try that. We need to know about answers to these questions, about the life now and the life to come. And interestingly enough, that's not found in a self-help book. It's found in a God-help book. That's right here. Both answers are found within this glorious book. And many of you who have been coming here regularly every week, you know that we have spent over a year and a half now in the Gospel of John. I say time flies when you're having fun. It has been over a year and a half. We started April 8th in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And here we are in November. As Brother Phil already said, it's already upon us. We're almost at Thanksgiving. So a year and a half, we've gone line by line through this gospel. And now we're nearing the closing of this amazing book. And the writer John now reveals what I've been telling you for a year and a half, the whole purpose of this book. If you're taking notes this morning, the title of the sermon is Written for You. And you could change that as you write, Written for Me. Written for You. We're looking at only a couple of verses this morning, John chapter 20. We're looking at the closing verses, 29 through 31. For those of you that haven't been with us and going through the context of what's going on, I'll fill you up, catch you up. Jesus has been crucified. And Jesus, just like he said he would, has risen from the grave. And he went and then appeared to his disciples. But when he appeared, Thomas was not there. And the disciples, in turn, went and they told Thomas, guess what? We have seen the risen Lord. And Thomas, instead of getting excited, Thomas said, look, I will never believe what you just told me. Unless I see the marks in his hands, put my finger in the holes where the nails were, put my hand into his side. He said, I will never believe. So just eight days later, Jesus appears to the disciples again. This time, Thomas is there. And Jesus goes directly to Thomas and says, Thomas, go ahead, put your finger in there. Put your hand into my side. And Thomas responds by saying, my Lord 
and my God in complete worship. We pick up in verse 29 now. In that context, Jesus, looking at Thomas, says to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now remember, Thomas responded rightly to the Lord. When he saw the risen Lord, he said, My God and my Lord. Jesus makes it clear that there will be others who will believe. Others who did not have the opportunity to put their finger where the nails were or put their hand into the side. And he says they will be more blessed. Do you know who he's referring to? Thank you for raising your hand. Yes, he's referring to you and to you and to you. He's referring to us that though we have not seen, we believe. The question is, do you truly believe? That's the question before us this morning. Do you believe? It is the question that is of the utmost importance this morning. And we're going to unpack what this means. Because for many of us this morning, we would say, of course I believe. So what truly does it mean to believe? In verse 30, you'll see John records for us. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I want you to take a sneak peek, just flip over to the last chapter, the very next chapter, the very last verse in the Gospel of John. See what John actually writes there. It's John chapter 21, verse 25. He says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now he's using hyperbole here, but he's saying Jesus has done so many things that the world couldn't even contain the books that could be written about those things. But John writes this book and records very specific things in this gospel. So what was his purpose? Why did he select to write about these particular points of Jesus' life? Well, he tells us. And this is something you've heard. If you've been with us last year and a half, you've heard me say it over and over again. Verse 31, look at it. John writes, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This is it. Now, for some of you, are like, man, it's 11 o'clock, we're done. We went through the Scriptures. This is where we're camping out this morning, right here. This is what is of utmost importance, is this piece right here, that this, John says, is written for you. For you. Hi, Barbara. Great to see you there. It's written for you. It's written for you. These things are written for you. He says these things are written now. To put ourselves in the mind frame of the Jewish readers that would have first read this, they would have picked up immediately on the phrase, these things are written. These things are written. John is, in a sense, saying these things have been written in the same way that the Old Testament scriptures are the written revelation of God. So, too, now this is the written revelation of God. This is how the hearers would have interpreted that. And we know about scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all scripture is breathed out by God. We know in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says that no prophecy has ever been given by the will of man. But listen to how it's recorded. Peter writes, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Church, what you hold in your lap this morning isn't some invention of man. This is the revelation of God from God. He has given it to us. John is saying, I am writing these things, giving you a revelation of God. And what a blessing it is to believe in Jesus, not because we have seen him, but because we have his written word, his holy, infallible, inerrant word. Like what John Calvin said about this, he said, today we behold Christ in the gospel no less than if he stood with us. 
his word. You have to realize much more than a book. Much more than the $11 billion industry of self-help books that are made by man and man's ways and man's philosophy. This is God's written revelation to us. So John says there are two reasons why he's recorded this for you. The first thing he says is, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's the first thing he says. He says it's of the utmost importance that you have the correct identity of Jesus. The correct identity of Jesus. That you have the right Jesus. That you believe in the right Jesus. Think about all the ideas that are spread about who Jesus is. It's all over the place. I would venture to say that our country as a whole is talking about the wrong Jesus. He is not the Jesus of the scriptures. He is the Jesus of one's imagination. I like what Kevin DeYoung describes as the different man-made ideas that are circulated in our country. Listen to these. He says, there's Republican Jesus. You know, the one who is against tax increases and activist judges and for family values and for owning firearms. But there's also the Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart and he's for reducing our carbon footprint and spending other people's money. He said there's the therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems. He heals our past. He tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's also the Starbucks Jesus who drinks his fair trade coffee. He loves spiritual conversations. He drives a hybrid and he goes to film festivals. There's also the open-minded Jesus who loves everyone at all times, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's the touchdown Jesus. The one who helps athletes run faster, jump higher than non-Christians, and the one who determines the outcomes of the Super Bowl. There's also the martyr Jesus. A good man who died a cruel death so that we can feel sorry for him. There's the gentle Jesus who is meek and mild. He has high cheekbones. He has flowing hair. He walks around barefoot. He wears a sash and he looks German. also the hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance. Imagine a world without religion, and he helps us to remember that all we need is love. There's also the yuppie Jesus, who encouraged us to reach our full potential, to reach for the stars, and if you can, buy a boat. There's also the spirituality Jesus who hates religion. He hates churches and pastors and priests and doctrines. He wants us to find the God within and listen to ambiguously spiritual music. There's the commonplace Jesus. He's good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and also bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so we can walk on mountains. How about the guru Jesus? a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. And the boyfriend Jesus. The boyfriend Jesus who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. And I'll close this long list off with the good example Jesus, you know, the one who shows you how to, how to help people, change the planet, and become a better you. I just went through a whole lot of ideas about who Jesus is. And although we chuckled and laughed at different areas, guess what? Those descriptions are who people believe Jesus is. Come up with all kinds of ideas. All kinds of ideas that are fashioned by man to make a God according to their own desires. And my friends, that is called idolatry. The idolatry, fashioning a God to your own liking. And that's who the world looks to as Jesus. That when we proclaim the name of Jesus, 
It's some imaginary Jesus, not the Jesus of the Scriptures. It might be Starbucks Jesus or Guru Jesus. This list goes on and on. Genie Jesus, Santa in the sky Jesus. There's a whole lot of them. And it can go on and on. The question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because believing the truth, knowing his true identity, is a matter of life and death. Life and death. John says that he has written this entire gospel that you might know the true identity of Jesus. That you would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus was not just a prophet. He was not just a good, uh, a good teacher. He was not just a miracle worker. He was the one the world was waiting for. Jesus. He's the son of David. He's the seed of Abraham. He is the one who would deliver God's people from captivity. The one who would fill, fulfill the law on God's people's behalf. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Christ. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, which might be shocking to some of us. Jesus, his last name isn't Christ. It's not like his first name is Jesus and his last name is Christ. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one or chosen one. In Greek, we have the equivalent over in Hebrew. That's where we get the word Messiah. Messiah. Jesus is the Lord's human name. Christ is his title or his office. Jesus Christ means Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. John has spent the entirety of his book proving that Jesus is the one sent by God to save his people. He says he's not only the one who was sent by God, but he is actually the God-man, being truly God and truly man. He is God in human flesh. You know, at the very beginning of his gospel, in John chapter 1, he starts off this gospel, and he says in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then just a handful of verses later, in verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, what does that mean? Jesus has always existed. Jesus has been one with the, with the Father. We're going to unpack that idea a little more. But this is what John starts off with, that we must know the true identity of Jesus. You know, first on the scene to be the forerunner is John the Baptist. We see that early on in the book of John. He points everybody to Christ. And as Christ first walks up, John the Baptist, not the writer of this gospel, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold. That was his introduction. Behold the Lamb of God. And one of his disciples, Andrew, who's Simon Peter's brother, he hears that and he responds. And in verse 41 of the opening chapter of John, says he, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. We have found him. The one whom they are waiting for. The coming Savior of the world. This is in the opening chapter. He is here. He has come. Andrew gets the true identity correct. Good job, Andrew. Jesus then reveals his true identity. And we see that in chapter 4 to a Samaritan woman at a well. In John chapter 4, and verses 25 and 26, the woman says to Jesus, she says, I know that Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. 
first time Jesus revealed his true identity was to this Samaritan woman. Again, Martha identified that he was the one. Martha, in chapter 11, she tells Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Church, what we don't have in our mindset that they had then is they were waiting for Messiah. They were waiting. They were longing for God to send the anointed one, the chosen one of God to come and redeem his people. And there he is amongst them. And he's identified, this is the Christ. You know, there are those who will argue to you and say, well, Jesus never said he's God. You know, that's just a a made-up doctrine of the church. That Jesus never proclaimed to be God. Do you know that's simply not true? I mean, hopefully if you've been with us through the study of the Gospel of John, you know that's definitely not true. Jesus affirmed his identity. For example, in chapter 10, verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. Father, they're one. You know, Jesus so clearly communicated that he was God, that the Jews that were against him, although they were upset at first that, oh, he's healing on the Sabbath, do you know why they really wanted to kill him? They accused him of blasphemy. In John chapter 10, verse 33, we see one example of it. It says, the Jews said, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man Make yourself God. The true identity is Christ. Not just a prophet, not just a good teacher, not just a miracle worker, but God in human flesh. Jesus most assuredly proclaimed this truth about himself. Jesus, and here's what we've got to get down, he has always existed. He's part of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eternally existing simultaneously as three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Some people think, oh, well, he was, he was created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of Christ, and what was his mission? Why then clothe himself, humble himself, take on human flesh? What's his mission? To seek and to save those who are lost. And guess what? That's us. Every single one of us. Every single one of us who have sinned against a holy God are lost. But we have a seeking Savior. The Christ. Do you know, Jesus as he walked around, he made this proclamation of being the Son of God. You know anybody can actually say that? Anybody can make those claims. I could say, hey, I am I'm not going to say it. But I can make that claim. Woe is me if I do. But there have been many madmen that have gone before and done that. The Bible even warns that if people start saying, there is the Christ and there is the Christ, that you have all these false teachers and people professing to be the Christ. The Bible warns about that. But what John spends the most of his gospel on is proving that he is the Christ. Proving that he is the Son of God. And he does that throughout the gospel. One, by just showing the works that he did that no man could do. That only God himself could do such things. Like healing the blind. Healing the lame. How about walking on water? How about feeding 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves? How about raising the dead to life? Lazarus, come forth. Jesus did these things. Jesus even went beyond those things, and he claimed, I'm going to die, and then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And you know what happened. He did exactly as he said he would do. Jesus rose from the grave. He has all authority over life, over death, over the grave. And John is saying you must get Jesus' identity correct. You've got to have the right Jesus. 
I've already gone through. The list is long of all the other Jesuses. But this Jesus, the Jesus of the Scriptures, he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He is God in human flesh, the Anointed One, the Chosen One of God, the Savior of the world. That's this Jesus, the one who's always existed, the one who took on flesh, the one who lived a sinless life. He's the perfect Lamb of God. You've got to believe in the right Jesus. Church, you turn on your TV, and you're going to hear a bunch of other Jesuses proclaimed. A whole lot goes out over the television, over the airwaves, and proclaim a different Jesus. You're going to have people show up at your door and proclaim to you a different Jesus. And they're going to use lingo that sounds very familiar, but the true identity of Christ is going to be a different Jesus. John is saying this is of the utmost importance that you know the true identity of Christ. That you believe in the right one. That he cannot be a Jesus of your imagination. He cannot be a Jesus of our culture's imagination. He can't be the Jesus of a celebrity pastor's imagination. He must be the Jesus that's revealed to us in the scriptures. This Jesus. John makes clear why we must know the true identity. Look again at verse 31 in John chapter 20. Second thing he says here, he says, again, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Again, you know who he is, his true identity. Look at the second part. And that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the second thing we're looking at. That you might have life in his name. We're talking about eternal life. Some people say, what is he talking about? I'm breathing right now. This life will come to an end. Jesus says, I came to give life and that more abundantly. But there's a word here that I want to talk about. That by believing. What does he mean by this word believe? Well, for starters, I'll tell you what it's not. You know, it's not being or necessarily just being religious doesn't mean you believe. I mean, you can go to church regularly. You, you can give freely of all your resources. You can work at being a better human. You can even profess to be a Christian. But none of these in and of themselves mean that you truly believe in Christ. None of those. So then what is John saying that you must believe? What does he mean to believe? He's talking about a saving faith, having complete trust in Jesus. You know, it's quite different than the demons. Do you know what the Bible says about the demons? That they believe. But it also says they believe and they shudder. They know the truth about Christ, but they are not in submission to him. They're not trusting him for salvation. They haven't yielded themselves to him. They know, and they shudder. To believe in Christ means to place your entire trust in him. I mean, think about it this way. Imagine you're invited onto a military plane. Sounds fun to me. Get invited on a military plane, you go and you're seated, and you look next to you, and next to you, there's a nicely packaged parachute. Huh. Well, I'm thankful I'm not going to need that. At least I hope I'm not going to need that. As you look over at that parachute, you're hoping that always stays right there. You continue on your way, and imagine as you're flying, that plane drops 5,000 feet immediately. Your stomach goes to your throat. Your parachute floats into the air. And you are freaking out. In that freaking out, hands are white knuckling in the armchair next to you. You're holding on for dear life. And then imagine the plane evens out. Back to normal. You're feeling better. You take a sigh of relief. Man, that was scary. But on the intercom comes the pilot. And he says, I've studied the plane. 
But the bad news is we've lost an engine, and we have nowhere safe to land. The only way you are going to get out alive is if you take the parachute and you jump. <laughs> Nerves would be racing like a NASCAR race. You would carefully get that parachute on as you're freaking out. Putting it on thinking, man, I, I've never used a parachute before. Well, what do I do? And as people start going and they're just jumping out, you're thinking, what about me? And as you get that parachute on, you're thinking, will this actually save me? Is this going to work? Will the parachute open? Was it packaged correctly? Will I even know how to pull the cord? All those thoughts are now running through your mind because it is becoming very real to you. It's becoming very real. And your only hope is to trust in that parachute. Your only hope as you are nerve-wracked is to jump out of that plane and put every ounce of trust that that parachute is going to open and save your life. At that point, there are no other options. There are no plan Bs. It is this parachute or bust. Church, that's what it means to trust in Christ. It means to completely put your trust in him, that there are no other options. It's not that I'm going to take some Jesus because I want to cover my bases. It's Jesus and only Jesus. It is Jesus as both Lord and Savior. Only Jesus. That's what it means to trust. What does it mean to believe? John says that when you believe that you would have life in his name, eternal life in his name, he's saying you've got to be all in. You can't be on the fence with Jesus. You can't be a Sunday churchgoer, but then live your life as you please the rest of the week. You've got to be all in. He's saying to believe is to fully commit, to fully put your hope and trust in. Know that he is both Lord of my life, Master, and Savior, the one who forgives. And the question would come, why would you trust in Jesus? I mean, why would you give up ruling and reigning over your own life and give Jesus rule and reign? Why would you do that? What would compel anyone to do such a thing? I mean, we all like control, right? Want to pick our own ways? 31 flavors, pick our own ice cream? We want options. What would compel somebody to be all in with Christ? I'm going to allow Jesus to tell you in his own words through this gospel. John chapter 3, verse 16 which, by the way, before I was a believer, I had no idea why someone was holding a sign like that in the end zone. John 3.16. That was not helpful for me. I had no idea what it meant. But when you hear the words of Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, listen, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why should you believe in this Jesus? Because there's going to come a day where we breathe our last. And then comes the judgment. You know, Jesus also said, as we went through this gospel, he said he would satisfy your deepest needs. In John chapter 6, verse 35, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Are you always looking for something else to satisfy you? And then by the time you get a hold of that, you think it's going to satisfy you, but you learn, I need something else. This ain't doing the job. I need to go after something more. Jesus says, look, I've come to put an end to that, that I would satisfy your greatest longings, your hungering, your thirst, and that you would have joy and satisfaction in him alone that he would be your greatest treasure. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know there's something about our freedom 
something about our, our human responsibility and how we respond to things, that when you choose sin, do you know there's consequences to sin? Like in the moment, sin, sin might seem pleasurable. It's like if you overeat. Something that hits home with me. Man, it tastes good while you're eating. But when you can't sleep that night, when you're struggling through the night to sleep, you're like, man, this has consequences. Sin has immediate consequences, and it has eternal consequences. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me is not going to walk in darkness. He's going to show us the way. He is the light. He is to reveal the path that we would be able to discern like we weren't able to before. John chapter 10, verses 9 and 9 through 11. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus proclaims himself to be the way of salvation. He is the door. He is the way to be saved. And again, in the same chapter, he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He says, I give them eternal life, and that they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I want to talk about this, because this is absolutely huge for a believer. Do you know what Jesus is talking about when he says, no one will ever snatch you out of his hand? He's talking about eternal security. Now, don't raise your hand, but how many of you blew it today? Don't raise your hand. But even on the drive here, you blew it. Jesus is saying that when you blow it, if you're in him, you don't lose the security of salvation. He's saying you are safe in Jesus. Your salvation is safe in him. That you are his. No one can snatch you out of his hand. For those who put their trust in Christ, this is a glorious thing. Because could you imagine if our salvation was based upon our good deeds? How many times a day would we lose our salvation? I mean, who would be so arrogant to say, well, I'm good enough to keep my salvation? Completely deceived. This is the goodness, the greatness of our Lord, that he would keep us secure. Jesus said in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked him a question. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this this morning? That Jesus is the way. That Jesus is the way to eternal life. Well, looking at us, I'm seeing many of us have been through this whole journey of John together. We've heard these truths before many times. And we're here gathered together corporately in the faith. So I want to ask you, when I say, do you believe this? I want to ask you this you know you truly believe? You ever ask yourself that question? Uh, Self-reflection. How do I know that I truly believe this? Well, Jesus told the religious leader in, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to him. He told him, you must be born again. That this wasn't a work of Nicodemus, it was a work of God. That something miraculous must take place. And the Bible says that upon genuine faith of Christ, that we are regenerated by God's Spirit. It means He gives us a new heart. Because of a new heart, we have new desires. And we're given God's Spirit to dwell in us, to empower us to love and to obey Christ. So how do you know if you truly believe? Come back to the same question. How do you know? The Bible would say, examine your fruit. Do you know a good tree produces good fruit? Now go the other way. Bad fruit produces bad fruit.
and by a tree you will know. Or by the fruit, excuse me, by the fruit you will know. I know in my backyard which one's a lemon tree because it has lemons coming out of it. You will be able to tell by the fruit in your life. Is there evidence in your life that you are growing in holiness, in obedience to Christ? I can't answer that question for you. That's a self-reflection question. Now, speaking of the word growing, Jesus said in John chapter 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. So if we are in Christ, we will bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 50-fold, some 100-fold. It's not that we're comparing how much fruit's coming out. Is there fruit? That's what the examination is. Is there fruit? Evidence. Is there obedience to Christ? Well, it's interesting. Jesus equated loving him with obeying him. Three times we went through this gospel in John chapter 14. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. He equated the two to be equal. And John also records a warning for us early on in this gospel. In John chapter 3, verse 36, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. John has argued, believe in Christ. Know his true identity. Believe in him and you'll have eternal life. Then he argues, here's how you'll know you truly believe. Because there'll be a change in you. And you'll desire to start wanting to obey God. Whereas at one time, you just rebelled against him. You lived contrary to him. You did your own thing. But now there is a change, a radical change transformation. That's what saving faith is. It's a, your conversion is a radical transformation. I, I liken it to a caterpillar. A caterpillar crawls up a little plant, hangs on a leaf, forms this little chrysalis, hangs upside down in there, and then what comes out? God does a miraculous work. That little teeny caterpillar <laughs> comes out a beautiful butterfly. Church that is transformation. That is what the gospel is to produce in our life, is transformation. The Bible says that you are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed. Behold, all things are new. It speaks of transformation. And yet, in our country, we hear so much exactly what I'm talking about today. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, more about Jesus. More about him being the Savior. And we think we're okay because I can answer the questions about Jesus. Scripture says that genuine faith produces transformation. So how do you know you truly believe? Is there transformation in your life? Or are you still the same person you were before coming into church, before everything? It's still the same person. You still act the same way, think the same way, behave the same way. It's still the same person. Those who have been regenerated by God's Spirit, who have a new heart, who have new desires, you could see it in them. Life is not the same as it was before then. And this can only happen through Christ. It does not happen through the $11 billion spent on self-help books. It comes through Christ. He is the one who boldly said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. And you know in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is Jesus and only Jesus. And because of this truth, because of the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone, this is why Jesus would be so clear and speak so plainly when he said this. Listen, John 8, 24. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Church, it doesn't get much straightforward than that. I am 
the one sent. I am the one who has come to save you. You know, the Bible makes it clear that it's appointed to man once to die, and then comes the judgment. That, that there are no second chances. It's not like we can just sit back and go, you know what, if I die, and then Jesus appears before me, then I'll believe. Oh, you'll believe. Trust me, you will believe. But it's too late to believe unto salvation. The Bible would say that there are no second chances, that we must get it right now, that you must get it right today. There are no second chances. Jesus said, unless you believe in him, you will die in your sins. We know the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free gift. Do you know what you have to do for a gift? <laughs> Receive it. You don't have to spend anything, do anything. You just got to take ownership of it. It's given to you. It's free. Eternity awaits each of us. If you believe in Christ, genuine belief, then the wonders and beauty of eternity are breathtaking. But if you do not have genuine faith in Christ, the horrors and dread of eternity are terrifying and gut-wrenching. It comes down to what John has written this book for. That you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Christ, the Messiah. And that by believing in his name, you might have life. The whole purpose of it. No, we fall short every day of the glory of God. Every day we sin. The Bible says, he who says he's without sin is a liar. We sin all the time. But God, in his great mercy, out of his amazing love, would send his son to die in our place, to pay the penalty that we could not pay. Jesus Christ, God-man, Truly God, truly man, dying on a bloody cross for you and for me. My question again is, have you been born again? Have you been transformed? I'm not asking you this morning is, do you believe in the, with the facts of Jesus? Do you know even the Jews that were opposed to him saying, hey, how can we oppose him? Look at all that he does. How could this not be the Christ? Look at what he's doing. They saw the facts before him of what he did. So it's not whether you can go take a religion class and get an A on a test. It's have you been transformed? Jesus calls you today to come to him. The question is, what are you waiting for? The Bible says today is the day of salvation now is the acceptable time. It doesn't say be religious and just go through the motions of being religious. Jesus beckons you now to come to him, to submit to him, to yield to him as Lord and Savior. So right now, where you are sitting, seated, if you understand that Christ is who he said he is, and you understand what he has done, and that all you have to do is believe in his name, your proper response to that right now is to repent and believe. That's it. You know, the, the Jewish leaders asked Jesus, hey, what are the works of God that we must do? He said, this is the work of God, to believe in his son whom he sent. That's it. That you would turn from trusting in yourself, turn from your ways, turn from your sin, and turn to Christ. That you would turn from trying to hope or trust in all these other things or seeking self-help books to be a better you and instead put all your trust, all your hope, all your chips in Jesus. That you'd be all in. That's what he calls you to do. To completely trust in him. And I would urge you, church, 
even if you've been coming to this church for many, many years and you've heard the gospel over and over, if you did a self-examination this morning and said, I'm not sure there's transformation in my life. This morning, Jesus says, come to me. Humble yourselves. Don't say, well, how could I do that today when I have known better? If today the Spirit draws you, come to Jesus. Yield to him. This sermon this morning was written for you. Turn to Christ. Turn to him now. Let's pray together. Father, it is always scary to preach on familiar ground. To know that the scripture that goes out, the words that go out, are so commonplace in many of our ears. And yet there's confidence in your spirit. Your spirit who would draw man and woman unto Christ. Father, I pray in this place that you would humble men and women. That they wouldn't be banking on their church attendance. The fact that perhaps they have improved in some areas of life. This morning they would know and hear the good shepherd call them unto himself. And they would respond. That they would turn from trusting in themselves and turn to trusting in Christ alone. Father, we know that your word says that when one sinner repents, there is a celebration in heaven. Father, we pray that that would occur this morning. That there would be wonderful transformation in the lives of individuals as you regenerate them by your spirit. Give them a new heart. Help them please you in every way. And Father, for us who are here this morning, that this is news that we have responded to. It is news of great joy. It is the greatest news we have ever heard and ever responded to. Father, give us boldness to open our mouths and to proclaim this truth to others. That others would know Christ as well. We pray this in Jesus' name.